Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. Well, again, welcome. Um, If you do not know me yet, my name is James. I'm the pastor here. And please feel free. If you need coffee, you can grab it even during the sermon. You know, go ahead if you need to refuel and all of that. But we're so glad to gather together um, this morning all the things that Dylan just said. So I won't say them again, um, but welcome. So I have a question as we jump into our sermon. We're going to be in the book of James, chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can go there. It's almost at the back of the Bible. If you do not have a Bible, there are some um, behind the the edge of the chairs here. You can have one. You can keep it if you need a Bible. There's some in French some in English as well, um, or the scripture will be on the screen here in a bit. But as we jump into that, here's how I kind of want to set it up, okay? Do any of you ever get sucked into those random videos on Facebook, right? And I think you probably know what I'm talking about. Whether They might be the food ones where you like watch someone just like ice cakes or something, right? Sometimes I see those. Um, or like I always see the one where there's this guy like out in the woods and he builds this entire like hut and irrigation system like all alone with just a hatchet or something, right? And I was like keep watching because I'm like I want to see what's going to happen, right? Um, or the guy that like creates a pirate ship out of chocolate or forges a knife out of like 5,000 paper clips and it's like this guy and it's like a do-it-yourself type video. It's like forge a knife out of 5,000 paper clips. I'm like, no thanks, I don't really need to do that, right? And then, like, these are the things that kind of come across my feed. But then if you watch one of them, Facebook thinks that you're really interested in that really weird thing, and they'll give you, like, 15 more of them on the same type of subject. So you guys might, can you, you can, like, nod your head if you know what I'm talking about, right? We all know, like, you're scrolling and just like, okay, you get sucked in really, really easily, right? Well, a while back, I saw one of these videos that I got stuck on, and I was watching it, and it was this huge, like, vice thing, right? This massive vice that you could, like, had probably incredible amounts of pressure, um, and they were putting, like, they would put a baseball in there, or they would put um, a football, or a basketball, or a golf ball, or, like, a, a billiard ball, and they would put all these things, and you're just watching this video in slow motion of these things just, like, some of them would just explode. Some of them would just kind of just like deflate. Some of them would just like kind of burst open and just slowly. So and there are different levels of pressure that would be put upon these things. And they, and they all like were crushed at different varying amounts of pressure. So what's my point in this? I want you to have that image in your mind because you and I live in a world that puts constant pressure on us just as humans, first of all. Um, But I think there is a level, too. As those of us who are followers of Jesus, there is a level of pressure that is put upon us as we go through life. There's pressure to perform, to get ahead, to keep up, to slow down, take it easy. There's pressure to fit in. There's pressure pressure to be fit. There's pressure to be like the perfect mom or dad. There's pressure to do everything right, to be the best student, the best boss, the best Instagrammer, whatever it is. There's pressure, whether it's like really, really there or we feel it, right? We know what it feels like. Okay, there's pressure. I've got to do this. I've got to keep up. And we deal with this all the time. But here's the deal. That's the way the world works. The pressure doesn't stop. It does not let up. And in our passage of scripture today, the church, the believers were facing pressure. So how does faith in Jesus connect with this unrelenting pace and pressure of life? There's good news. 
And we'll get into that this morning, right? But the main point, the main idea is this, that faith produces patience in the pressure. It wasn't really on purpose that those are all like alliteration and start with P's, but that just happened this time, right? Faith produces patience in the pressure, right? And if you've been around here with us for the past or previous weeks, we're going through the book of James in a series called Faith Produces Blank. And each Sunday, we're seeing something from the book of James, what faith produces in our lives, right? It's a study in the New Testament book of James. We have two weeks left, meaning like today and next week. So if you've been a part, you've been around, and you've, or you haven't, you can like keep reading with us or catch up. Read the book of James this week and kind of catch up with what's happening. It is full of encouragement and challenge and wisdom that's very, very practical. Because what comes out of our life when faith in Jesus is present? That's what this series has been about. That true faith and dependence on God will result in an overflow from our lives. That when we put our faith in Jesus, he works in us, he changes us, he shapes us, he forms us, and out of our life comes fruit, comes something that Jesus produces. Now, a lack of faith will produce stuff too, right? But as Jesus works in us, it produces in us love and joy and peace and patience and all of these things in our lives that are so important. So let's read our scripture today. Be in James chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. After we read it, we're going to get some context and some background and all of that. So, James chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That's intense, right? You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. All right. There's a lot there, but we're going to get into it together this morning. And kind of as we start with that, uh, I'll, I'll, I say this often, but I'll say it again, like, we need God's Spirit to reveal God's Word to our hearts. I can say a lot of words this morning, right? But unless God's Spirit speaks to our hearts, then it's just words. So let that be your posture this morning, saying, God, would you speak to my heart? Would you help me understand what your Word is saying? And I believe that God is faithful to do that. His Spirit will revert, reveal to us the truth of his word. So, some backgrounds here. Remember the whole context of James. It's that James is like a pastor in the church in Jerusalem, and he's writing to the church. He's writing to believers in Jesus who have been scattered all over the place because of ongoing persecution. 
Right? And so when we just, what we just read there, verses 7 through 11, are again a specific encouragement in the middle of the pain, oppression, and persecution that they're facing. So if you kind of look at the whole passage we just read in a nutshell, it's this. Many in the church were being oppressed by rich landowners, right? These are like the villains in this story, the bad guys, right? James writes to warn against this oppression and also to encourage the believers to be patient in suffering because one day Christ will return. This passage is a reminder to trust the faithfulness and the justice of God. Here's a complete and total side note. Verse 12, which we just read, kind of stands on its own in this passage. So we're actually, I'm going to say a couple things, and then we're not going to reference verse 12 again. So um, verse, this concept where verse 12 says, Do not swear by heaven or earth, let your yes be yes, your no be no. This concept of being trustworthy in speech circles back to other things that James has written about our words. He's saying that the words that come out of our mouths should reflect the work of God in our hearts. So we could dive into that. You can dive into that on your own sometime. But we're going to leave verse 12 to the side for the moment, all right? So, but today, faith produces patience in the pressure. So we're going to tackle this in two sections because it's kind of written in two sections. And the two sections are a message to the rich oppressors and a message to the church. We'll start with the rich oppressors. So this first section will lead into our main point of today. But understanding this passage gives us the background of what the point is this morning. This passage talks about rich and poor. And in chapter 2 of James, James tells the rich people who are in the church not to treat other wealthy people differently. Not to treat wealthy people better than the poor. He's basically, he says, don't show favoritism. Just because somebody walks in and they're dressed nice and they don't smell bad and they look good, don't treat them better than you'd treat anyone else. And so there is an element of this where this passage, there's a reminder to the Christians, hey, for those of you that have money, that are wealthy, that have a certain standing in society, don't show favoritism. Why? Because Jesus has come and cut all of that down. That our, our standing in society, our identity is not in what we have or don't have. Our identity is in Jesus. So there's this reminder there. So that still applies. But in these verses, verses 1 through 6, there's a twist. These verses are not written to the church. And if you'll notice, look at, looking at verses 1 through 6, even in the very beginning, it says, Come now, you rich Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. But if you look at verse 7, it says, Be patient, therefore, brothers. So he, he switches back in verses 7 to 11 to addressing them as brothers and sisters, which is a sign that he's talking to the church. But in verses 1 through 6, he's not talking to the church. Okay, He does not call them brothers. He simply tells them that judgment is coming because of what they are doing to the poor. So the first segment here is kind of two-sided. It's primarily a warning of coming judgment on those whose God is their wealth, those who are rejecting the authority of God in their lives and oppressing the poor. And secondly, it's a reminder to Christians, because they would have read this as well, it's a reminder to Christians also to live in a way and use their money in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. So we'll dig in, bring some practical application kind of as we go through the sermon this morning, right? Four major sections. The first one is this, judgment is coming. It's a happy Sunday morning phrase, right? Judgment is coming. And verse one is very direct. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This is not a good scenario, right? This is not a good situation. Because 
James is writing to them and saying, hey, you guys better be ready because judgment is coming. God is going to bring judgment on these people because of the way they're oppressing the poor, right? They, these, these, apparently, these were people in society. It calls them landowners. They were people who were like the elite. They had money. They were wealthy. They owned everything. And they were hiring people to do their work. It says they were mo- people, um, the laborers who mowed your fields. And so they're hiring people. The people are doing the work. Many of these people were probably these believers. They're going to work. They're doing their work. They're leaving. And the rich landowners are so greedy and selfish that they're not paying them their money, right? This is the issue here, right? They're oppressing the poor. They're just getting richer and richer, and the poor are getting poorer, right? So this is the surface issue, but under the surface, the warning to the rich, I think, is ultimately a warning against rejecting the authority of God. Because what are they doing? They're opposing God. They're saying, I'll do what I want. What does God have to do with it? If I want more money, I get more money. Who cares about those other people? They're rejecting the authority of God. They're opposing God because God loves the poor. When you read scripture, all over the place, God cares for those who are weak, are vulnerable, are poor. God cares for the poor. And so these people were setting themselves up in a way that was completely opposite of who God was. Remember, they're not believers, but they're living their lives for themselves focused on themselves, and judgment. They're facing judgment because of that. And so the idea that we think about here, the idea of God's judgment, it's not necessarily a popular idea. Like if you just go talk to your friends about, hey, what do you think about the judgment of God? They're like, eh, right? Because we say, isn't God a loving God? Isn't, why would he do that? Yes, he is, but he is also a holy God. And God will correctly reveal and judge sin for what it is, which is rebellion in opposition against him. So part number one there, what we want to see, this warning to the rich is that judgment is coming. Point two is you've put your hope in the wrong thing. So he kind of says, here's why. You have put your hope in the wrong thing. This is verses two and three. He's reminding them like, hey, your, your riches and have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver has corroded. And he kept, keeps saying like, all these things, you're putting your hope in wealth, but it doesn't last. These people are putting their hope in their, in their riches, their status, their reputation, material things. For us, it's this idea that we can think or we can see around us. If I make enough money, I'll have what I need. If I had those clothes, then I'd be cool, right? If I lived in that apartment, then my life would be better. If I drove that car, I'd be respected. If I had that phone, then I'd take better pictures. Whatever it is, like we always, we easily put our hope in material things. But we know material things don't last. And they don't really bring fulfillment, right? If you get something new that you really wanted in the moment, it's like, oh, this is awesome. And then not too long after, it's like, oh, I need something else, right? This is our human nature, right? We know this in our brains, that material things are not what's going to satisfy us. But sometimes we don't really know it deep in our hearts, right? And that's what was happening here. They were putting their hope in all these material things. And verse 3 is a good visual. He says, he says the, the, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That's pretty intense, right? But what he's pointing to is this fact that all these things you're putting your hope in, they're corroding, they're wasting away. And if someone was to like walk into their homes and see this like corroded, dingy piece of silver, it would be like, this is exhibit A, that this guy put his hope in this, and it did not fulfill him, and it did not last, right? Um, and so this, it's evidence against you. That corrosion happens. It's, the, it's a picture of the corrosion that happens in our hearts when we set our hearts on earthly things, that it eats away at our spiritual vibrancy in life. It's evidence. He says, you've put your hope in these things, and they're wasting away, and that waste, that corrosion that you see is evidence against you, right? So be honest. How many of us could go home 
and find something that at one time we really, really wanted and it really mattered to us, but we know that currently it's in a box, in a closet, or under the bed, or on a shelf, literally collecting dust, right? It's probably all some, something that all of us could find. When I was in high school, this was the late 90s, right? Um, at the time, black, like fairly tall Doc Martens were like the cool thing for like the people that I hung out with, right? And so like I really wanted some, and now they're like completely in style, so I should have kept them. But um, so I really wanted them, and they were expensive. Like, and I was like 16, and I was doing some whatever job I was doing at the time, and I saved my money and spent like 130 bucks on these black. Doc Martens that I probably looked like the biggest goof in the world, but I wore them. I thought they were cool. We wore them with shorts, which is just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Go look up, like, basically, like, Seattle grunge music scene from the 1990s. That's what I tried to dress like. So, um, anyways, um, and so I wanted them. I wore them. I got them. And then I just remember this specifically, like, a few years later, I remember finding these pair of shoes in the back of my closet, and they literally were just, like, filthy and dirty, and they had, like, they were, like, moldy and all this stuff. And I was like, oh thing that I wanted so bad. So we all know this thing. And this is what was happening. They were putting their hope in the wrong things. James says, you're storing up treasures. You've laid up treasures in the last days. And this is a reference to what Jesus said. Because what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. And they're doing the opposite here. Because Jesus said, store up treasure in heaven. Put your, your effort, your life into things that last, and things that invest in the kingdom of God and into eternity. You're putting your hope in the wrong things. And he goes on in verse 5 to say you're self-indulgent and living in luxury, living for pleasure, living for yourselves. He's, the, the, the accusation against them at the beginning here is you're putting your hope in the wrong things. Then he goes on. He says you are oppressing the poor. This is kind of part three of this first section. This is the issue that's on the surface, right? There's issues of injustice. The rich people are not paying their workers for what they are owed. What's oppression? Oppression is prolonged, cruel, or unjust treatment or control. That's what's happening here. And this idea of pressure that we talked about at the beginning, there is a picture of pressure here that these rich landowners are causing, are asking for more and more work. They're giving less pay, and there is pressure on these believers. They're literally hungry, some of them dying. There's all these things happening because of this oppression, because of this pressure. And the rich here in this passage are using their power and position to control, to get what they want, and to apply pressure to the poor. They're using their pride their power and their position to make even more money with no thought or concern for people or for God. This is the accusation, and it circles back to say there is judgment coming against you. So how do we apply this before we move into part two, which will get into the main point of what we're talking about? Right? How do we apply this first part? Let me start with this. This passage, our whole passage here, addresses two different groups, followers of Jesus and those who are not followers of Jesus. So this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've put your faith in Jesus, this passage should remind us that wealth, while it's not a bad thing, can easily be an idol in our lives. We can easily shift into selfish living, living for ourselves, putting our hope in material things, and self-indulgence. It can cause us to ignore those in need. And so it should be a reminder to Christians that we should live with generosity. We should live with open hands with everything that God gives us. We must put God first, even in our finances. Because as the Christians would have led the, read this letter from James, it's a reminder to the rich, even those who are Christians, that they're to live in a different way. But 
as I said, this passage is mainly directed to those who are not Christians. So today, if you're here and you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ as the only way to God, then I would tell you with love this morning that you are not a follower of Jesus. You are, as this passage says, you are under the judgment of God. Your sin separates you from God. And I want you to hear this whole thing I'm about to say, right? Because that can be like, okay, well, that's kind of harsh and cruel. But I want you to listen because there is good news. And this morning, you may not be actively oppressing the poor, but that's the surface issue. Because what's under the surface? You may be living in a way where you're rejecting God, where you're saying, I'm in charge of my own life. Living in a way that's, hey, whatever feels good to me, living for pleasure, I'm my own boss. The Bible describes this as sin. And the Bible describes this as rebellion against God. This is not a popular idea, but this is reality according to the Bible, that sin is rebellion against God. It's rejection of him as the true authority in our lives. And anyone who lives this life rejecting God is separated from God. And anyone who dies separated from God will be separated from God for eternity. This is bad news. There is a weight to this. We have to understand this for ourselves. We have to understand this for people around us that don't know Jesus, that there is judgment coming because of sin. It is a reality according to God's word. And to know this morning that that's you, you cannot be good enough on your own. You can't earn your own way to God. You can't just hope that everything turns out for the best. And maybe you've been in a church for a long time. Maybe you're new to this. But ultimately, you have to wrestle with, have I surrendered my life to Jesus and put my faith in him? So it's bad news to understand that because of our sin, judgment is coming. But there is good news, right? In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, while we were still sinners, while we're in that place, that place of judgment and deserving judgment, while we're stuck in that place of sin, right in that moment, it says this, Christ died for our sins. That Jesus has died to take your sin and my, my sin upon himself. So again, this is application here, right? That if you are not a Christian, you're not a believer, I want you to know, first of all, that you're completely welcome here. We don't look at you like you're some alien or anything like that, right? Because for every single person in this room who is a follower of Jesus, it is by God's grace that we have been saved. And it creates humility rather than pride. And every single person, like that song we sang in the beginning, can say, I was dead, but now I'm alive. Not because I'm good, because Jesus is good. And so it's hopeful, right? But if you're not a Christian, this what I just shared is actually the only application that even matters to you today. The application is this. Do, would you accept the truth of your brokenness and sinfulness and your need for Jesus, or will you reject it? It's the only application that matters. And so my challenge, my, my invitation to anyone in this room that's not a Christian is put your faith in Jesus he stands waiting, inviting, calling, saying, come to me and I will give you rest. The door is wide open for anyone. So that's the first part, okay? Section one, it's a warning of coming judgment to those who are putting their hope in riches. But now we jump to verse seven. And this part is a message to the church. Many of those, many of whom were poor and being oppressed and under pressure by these wealthy landowners. And as we get into this, imagine the encouragement these readers would have felt when this letter came. Right? They're suffering persecution. They're dealing with all kinds of things. And James comes right in the middle of it and says, be patient in your suffering. Hang on. Don't give up. 
The second part here is encouragement. So the message to the church, point number one is this. Be patient. The Lord is coming. Right? In verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains. And he continues to say, be patient. So in verse 7, we get a therefore, which the cheesy church joke is, if you see therefore, you want to know why it's therefore. It is there because of what we just heard. There is oppression. There is pressure being put upon people. And in the midst of that, James says, be patient. Be patient, even though this is happening. Patient, even though you're under pressure from the rich. But why? Be patient. For what? Right? He says, till when? He says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Because as a Christian, our hope is in the fact that Jesus is returning. And that's what he's telling these believers. Christ will return. Christ will make all things new. He is the God of justice. Be patient. He's coming again. And the encouragement to be patient here is rooted in eternity. It's rooted in the fact that the ultimate hope is not found in this world, but it's found in eternity when Jesus returns and makes all things new, right? Because for the Christian, suffering is always temporary. I'm not saying it's not real. Suffering is very real. We face all kinds of things. But for a Christian, suffering is always temporary. It doesn't mean it's going to end like when we think, but it means that even if it leads to death, that suffering will end because we have hope in eternity. Suffering is always temporary because Jesus is coming back and our hope is in him. And he gives a picture here in this passage of a farmer, right? He said he just gives a fairly simple example. Remember, a farmer, he plants stuff. He has to be patient, right? Because he has to wait. How many people have grown things before? I'm not going to ask what you've grown. We don't have to get into that today. Uh, but if you've grown things, you know it takes a long time. It takes a lot of work. You've got to weed things and water things. But there is a patience that happens. So it's a simple analogy that he gives. Be patient, just like the farmer. And we move on to verse 8, and it says, Establish your hearts. And again, he says, For the coming of the Lord is at hand. And as I was reading this this week, I love this. This jumped off the page to me, this, this idea of establishing your hearts. So get the big picture. They're being oppressed. He says be patient, and he says establish your hearts. To establish is to strengthen something, to prop something up, to support, right? And in my mind, as I was thinking about this, I got the image of like a bridge, right? So we're going to look at the first bridge here, okay? How many people would be like, yes, I am all about that. I, am go I will go on that bridge, right? Um, that's in China somewhere, and it's over this massive, massive gorge. And it's glass, right, so you can see through. How many people are like, no, I am not, not for that? Okay, right, that is a very scary bridge. Um, no matter how sturdy it actually is, I do not feel like that bridge is very established, right? And it would take a little bit of uh, courage to walk out on it. So when you get this idea of established, though, look at the second bridge here. This is a better idea. This is, our, this is a, a computer imagery of our wonderful... Champlain Bridge here in Montreal, right? Um, but look, look here in the bottom left corner. You see all those massive concrete-like beams. I think they're concrete, right? That bridge is established. It's not moving. That's their hope anyway, that that bridge is supposed to be there for a very, very long time, right? It took a long time to build, right? But that's the picture of establish your hearts. But just like that bridge must be properly established, supported, built up, strengthened. James says, establish your hearts. And just like a bridge, why must it be that way? Because pressure is coming, literal pressure. Vehicles and cars and trucks and everything else. There is pressure. That's what a bridge is for, right? To be able to take the pressure of these things. He says, establish your hearts in the midst of the pressure. So these people are being oppressed. They're being persecuted. They're under pressure. And James tells them, establish your hearts. 
to put their hearts in order, to consider their foundations. Because when our heart is strengthened and established in Jesus, it's strong and secure no matter what is happening around us. The Bible even uses the word unshakable, that we have a faith that's unending, that's unshakable, that's immovable because of who our God is. So James says, be patient. The Lord is coming, and in the midst of that, he says, establish your hearts. Establish your hearts in Christ, knowing that our foundation is built upon Jesus, upon his goodness and his righteousness, and not our own goodness or effort. So what, here's what James is saying in all of this. The world will seek to oppress you and to beat you down at every turn. It's bad news, right? But take heart. Be patient because Jesus is coming back. God is a God of justice and justice belongs in his hands. When a lot of these people maybe wanted to like start a revolution and go fight the awful landowners, right? Which there's a time to call people on their actions, right? But in the midst of that, James says, be patient. It may be unjust. What's in front of you may be unjust, but you can trust your God who is a God of justice. He will be victorious in the end. So let's quickly apply this, this idea of being patient and pressure. Because I don't know every I don't know everyone's situation in this room, right? You may actually be living in a situation that's a lot like verses one through six. Right? A literal situation where you are oppressed, overworked, underpaid, unexploited in some way. I, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. You may be in that. Or maybe you just know what I mean when I talk about the never-ending pressure of life. Because this world will seek to squeeze anything it can out of us. So whether, whatever part of that you're in, wherever you are, the encouragement this morning is exactly what James said to the believers. Be patient in suffering. Because as a Christian, your hope is not in this world. It's in eternity with Jesus. And you may be dealing with something where you're saying, that is unjust. That's not the way it should be happening. Or you may see something in the world. That is unjust. Those people are doing this. They are doing that. And it's not the way it should be happening. And our hope is in knowing that God is a God of justice. That God will fight our battles. That God will be victorious. We can trust in the justice of God. And this is freeing, right? There's freedom in that because no longer do we have to say, I've got to go deal with this. I've got to fix this. We can say, God, I don't like this. It's hard, but God, I trust you. This is the practical application of this, that we have hope coming. And in the midst of that, the second practical application is establish your hearts. Whatever scenario in life that you're in, whatever you're dealing with, whatever the struggle is, the, the temptations, the, the, the frustrations, all of these things, establish your hearts. And it's this idea of dealing with what's internal in our hearts instead of just trying to fix the external. That we take that time and we say, Jesus, I need to remember what is true. I need to remember that you are a God who's in control, that you're a God of justice, that you are a God of love, that you have saved me by your grace, that you have forgiven my sin, that my identity is found in you and not in myself or what I do or how I fail. And that's establishing our hearts when we remind ourselves of the truths of God's word. And I think we can do that. Hopefully this is very practical. We can establish our hearts in very, very small moments. Right? When we start to feel that stress and anxiety, whatever it is, that we can stop, even if it's 30 seconds, and be still and establish our hearts and remind ourselves of who Jesus is. But I think we should do it in 
big, massive decisions in life as well. We should come to that point where we say, I don't know what's about to come. I don't know what my future holds. I don't know what's next for me. I don't even know what I'm doing today. But God, I establish my heart in you, and I trust you that you know. And it becomes practical. And guys, I'm very imperfect. But God is teaching me this in my own life. And in those moments when I feel the pressure, I feel the weight of life, I probably put most of it on myself at times. Anybody else relate, right? Um, but in those moments that I can stop and I can say, wait a minute, I've got my, my bearings are off. I need to establish my heart. I need to find my strength in the Lord rather than trying to figure something out on my own. So faith produces patience in the pressure Come to verse 9, and there's another slight side note, So, but we're going to run through this quickly. It's, he, he tells the church, right, in the midst of these things, be patient in the suffering. And then he says, guard against grumbling, right? Who would you say, because he says, don't grumble against one another, brothers, and so that you may not be judged, right? Who would say it's really easy to complain and grumble? I would. I'm the first one. It doesn't really matter. There's a lot, plenty of things that I can complain and grumble about. And so when you read this here in the midst of this, it almost seems like it doesn't fit. You're like, James, why did you write that there? Um, it doesn't seem to fit. But all throughout the book of James, the church has had pressure and trouble both from without, so persecution and all kinds of things, but they've had issues and trouble from within. So if you've been tracking through this series, there's plenty of where James wrote through the church and said, hey, you guys need to get your act together because you're missing the point. Um, and so there's pressure from without and from within. There's issues of disunity, and people are using their words to harm one another. So even in the midst of this, as they're suffering, as he tells them to be patient, James says, don't grumble against each other. Don't speak poorly against each other. You're under pressure from the world. Don't let that creep into the church as well. Stand together, stand firm in Christ, and love one another. Because by grumbling against one another, they were not actually trusting the Lord. And they were not actually being patient in the middle of their pain. They were just going to one another and saying, why do we have to do this? This is awful. Why are we, you know, this is unjust. When James says, no, yes, it is unjust, but put your hope in the Lord. Right? So guard against grumbling, grumbling. And that matters for us too, as individuals, as families, as churches, as we're going through the world, as we feel the pressure on all these things, there is a temptation to just begin to complain and grumble and say, God, why do I have to do this? Why, why is he annoying, she annoying, they annoying? Whatever it is, right? Guard against grumbling because it's actually a symptom and a sign of not trusting the Lord. He continues, number three here, point three. He says, you are not alone. So as he's writing to the church, he says, you are not alone. In verses 10 and 11, he reminds these followers of Jesus to look back, to look at history, to remember those who have come before them. And he references the prophets and those who stayed faithful while under pressure. And he references Job. And if you know the story of Job um, from the Bible, it's a story where Job had everything taken away from him, and yet he did not curse God. He had every reason on a human level, and yet he continued to say, I'm putting my trust in God. He had everything taken away in, the, in, in our passage today. It says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. He stayed faithful even in the pressure, even in the suffering. And so when James writes and says, you're not alone, remember, like, imagine the encouragement here. He's saying, guys, it may feel like you're the only ones in the world, but you're not alone. There have been people throughout generations, throughout history, who have suffered, who have dealt with the pressure. And yet, by God's grace, they remained faithful. They remained patient. They remained steadfast. So he had to get them out of their heads a little bit because we can feel like we're alone. But he said, you're not 
alone. Kind of a sub-point to that, he says, finally, he says, remember who God is. So at the end of verse 11, quickly, he adds this small thing. He says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He says, remember who God is. Remember his character, what he's like. That the Lord is compassionate. He's merciful. That when you're under pressure, be patient. The Lord is coming. And who is this Lord that's coming? What's he like? Is he like a cruel taskmaster? Or is he like a forgetful grandfather? No, he is compassionate. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's loving. He's strong. And James says, remember. And when he tells them to be patient, it's based on the power and the faithfulness of God. He says, you're not alone. Remember who God is. He's kind of pulling them, like I said, he's kind of pulling them outside of themselves to stand back and say, yes, we're in the middle of suffering. And I don't think James or, or God is diminish, diminishing that at all. But he's saying, in the middle of that, remember who God is. So how do we apply this final part here? So for you and for myself, be reminded today that when the pressure comes, when the difficulty comes, you are not alone. Because we often think, I'm the only one. I'm the only one struggling with this, or I'm the only one dealing with that, or I'm the only one that knows this experience. But I, we've got to know today, I'm telling myself too, we've got to know that that is not true. When we look at the Bible and see how men and women generations ago endured through pain and suffering and difficulty and trial, we can be reminded through God's word that we're not alone. When we learn about men and women throughout history who walked faithfully with God through pain, we can see that we're not alone. I like to read. I think others here like to read as well. There is some great value. There's all kinds of great things to read. There's some really good value in reading a biography about someone who died long ago who walked with Jesus. Because when you read those biographies, you see and hear the struggle, the pain, the ups and downs, and you can say, oh, I'm facing things in my life. It's not too different than what that guy faced or what that lady faced, and God is faithful. So we need to be reminded. We need to remember that you're not alone. But I, even then, in it, like literally right now today, to know that right where you sit, if you feel alone, you're not alone. How do we break past that? We have to trust each other. We have to be vulnerable. We have to go to someone and say, man, can you pray with me? I'm really struggling with this. And I bet so many times that person would say, really? Me too. Right? And how much freedom comes from saying, okay, it's not great. This is awful, but I'm not alone. Right? It's good news. You're not alone. So let it actually be encouraging to know that you are not the only one. That's what the enemy wants. That's what the devil wants is for you to think, I'm alone. Because it will isolate you. But it's not true. Be honest with someone. Reach out to someone. Share your heart with someone. Someone you trust, right? Because someone, there are people that will kind of take your heart and step on it and say, see you later, right? That's not what I'm talking about. But someone you can trust, that you can pray with, that you can say, you just pray with me. I feel alone. And there's encouragement in that. So the, the, the application is reach out. Remember. Remember that you're not alone. Remember what God is like. And James points to the mercy and compassionate compassion of God. 
When we think about those things, that he is compassionate towards us, he loves us, he is merciful towards us. We think about the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. If we can have a huge view of the goodness and faithfulness of God, think about that. If you, as you go through this week, as you go through your day-to-day life, and you are walking in a way of knowing, my God is a God who is good, and my God is a God who is faithful, and I'll add a third one, my God is a God who is strong. If we have a huge view of God and knowing that that's what God is and that's what he's like, how does that impact the things that we face? How does that impact the struggles that we face? It gives us hope. It allows us to keep going to say, my hope is in Jesus. My hope is in a God who is faithful and good. But think about the opposite. If we have a very small view of God, well, yeah, I know I'm supposed to say God's good, but I don't really feel it. I don't really understand it. I'm supposed to say that God's faithful, but I don't know where God is. How does that impact it? It pushes that pressure down on us even more. But when we read God's word and we remind ourselves God is good and God is faithful and we have a huge, big view of God in that way, it gives us strength in the midst of that. And we remember that. And when we remember the other characteristics of God, what he is like, when we set our mind on these things, our hearts are strengthened and established when the pressure comes. All right, I'm almost done. I'm going to wrap all this up. I preach far longer than Graham or Dylan, so fair warning. Quick recap, okay? The people of God are being oppressed. They're under pressure by these rich landowners, and the encouragement of James is that they be, be patient and stay faithful because the Lord will return. The big idea for this morning is this. Faith produces patience in the pressure. And as we close, it's this. You may be under pressure right now, or you may just know, like I do, just the just kind of low-level anxiety, low-level pressure that's always there in our world, right? The low-level stress of everything from like trying to find a parking spot to trying to do whatever. It's just always there, and you know it, and you feel it. Or maybe it's bigger. The way which you're facing is even bigger. But when there is oppression, when the world is seeking to squeeze everything out of you, when you are cast down, when you don't know if there's hope, when you don't know which way is up, hear this morning that God is faithful. God is sovereign. He rules and reigns over everything, and God is good. And know this morning that God sees your pain. He sees your struggle. He's not ignoring it. He's not indifferent to it. But in the midst of that, he says, stay faithful. Be patient. That when you feel forgotten, God has not forgotten you. And this is just based on, that seems like a nice idea. It's based on the truth of Jesus. That Jesus himself lived a perfect life. Did not deserve judgment. Did not deserve death. But bore our sin. Bore our iniquity. Took the pressure on himself. Took the weight of our sin upon himself and died for our sin so that our sin can be forgiven. And not only that, why does this, why can we be patient? Why can we know that there's hope? Because in the middle of that, Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the grave. That he has full power and authority over death and over, and over the world. He has authority. 
That's why we have hope. Because of the love and the grace of Jesus where Jesus invites people to be forgiven, to be made new, and to come into relationship with God, to know God in intimate relationship with God who loves us. And that's how we establish our hearts. That's how we know and walk with Jesus. And so know this morning there is hope that is found in that. And as we worship, as we continue this morning, we're going to take, com- take communion together this morning here in a, in a few moments. But the reminder is to be patient. Be patient in the suffering. Be patient in the pressure. And maybe this morning you need to pray with someone. Maybe you just need to go to someone and say, I, I, need, I, I feel alone. And I'm going through this. And find someone you trust. And if it, you don't know anyone here you trust, then um, you're, you're more than welcome to, to talk with me or, or any of us here this morning. We'd love to pray with you. Or maybe this morning you need to say, I need to put my faith in Jesus. We would love to pray with you. Um, but as we sing this morning, um, think about the greatness of God. Let's consider who he is and what he has done. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl.gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world. 